Chapter 14, Part 2 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 2, by William Blackstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roy Haynes. Of Title by Descent, Part 2. The nature and degrees of kindred being thus in some measure explained, I shall next proceed to lay down a series of rules or canons of inheritance according to which estates are transmitted from the ancestor to the heir, together with an explanatory comment remarking their original and progress, the reasons upon which they are founded, and in some cases their agreement with the laws of other nations. 1. The first rule is that inheritances shall lineally descend to the issue of the person last actually seized in infinitum, but shall never lineally ascend. To explain more clearly both this and the subsequent rules, it must first be observed that by law no inheritance can vest, nor can any person be the actual complete heir of another till the ancestor is previously dead. Nemo est aeres viventis. Before that time, the person who is next in the line of succession is called an heir apparent or heir presumptive. Heirs apparent are such whose right of inheritance is indefeasible provided they outlive the ancestor, as the eldest son or his issue who must by the course of the common law be heirs to the father whenever he happens to die. Heirs presumptive are such who, if the ancestor should die immediately, would in the present circumstances of things be his heirs, but whose right of inheritance may be defeated by the contingency of some nearer heir being born, as a brother or nephew whose presumptive succession may be destroyed by the birth of a child or a daughter, whose present hopes may be hereafter cut off by the birth of a son. Nay, even if the estate hath descended, by the death of the owner, to such brother or nephew or daughter, in the former cases the estate shall be divested and taken away by the birth of a posthumous child, and, in the latter, it shall also be totally divested by the birth of a posthumous son. We must also remember that no person can be properly such an ancestor as that an inheritance in lands or tenements can be derived from him unless he hath had actual season of such lands either by his own entry or by the possession of his own or his ancestor's lessee for years or by receiving rent from a lessee of the freehold or unless he hath had what is equivalent to corporal sizing in hereditaments that are incorporeal, such as the receipt of rent, a presentation to the church in case of an advowson, and the like. But he shall not be accounted an ancestor who hath only a bare right or title to enter or be otherwise seized. And therefore all the cases which will be mentioned in the present chapter are upon the supposition that the deceased, whose inheritance is now claimed, was the last person actually seized thereof. 
for the law requires this notoriety of possession as evidence that the ancestor had that property in himself which is now to be transmitted to his heir. Which notoriety hath succeeded in the place of the ancient feudal investiture, whereby, while feuds were precarious, the vassal on the descent of lands was formally admitted in the Lord's court, as is still the practice in Scotland, and there received his sizin, in the nature of a renewal of his ancestor's grant, in the presence of the feudal peers, till at length, when the right of succession became indefeasible, an entry on any part of the lands within the county, which, if disputed, was afterwards to be tried by those peers, or other notorious possession, was admitted as equivalent to the formal grant of season, and made the tenant capable of transmitting his estate by descent. The season, therefore, of any person, thus understood, makes him the root or stock from which all future inheritance by right of blood must be derived, which is very briefly expressed in this maxim, Sezina facedes depitem. When, therefore, a person dies so seized, the inheritance first goes to his issue, as if there be Geoffrey, John, and Matthew, grandfather, father, and son, and John purchases land and dies, his son Matthew shall succeed him as heir, and not the grandfather Geoffrey, to whom the land shall never ascend, but shall rather eschet to the Lord. This rule, so far as it is affirmative and relates to lineal descent, is almost universally adopted by all nations, and it seems founded on a principle of natural reason, that whenever the right of property transmissible to representatives is admitted, the possessions of the parents should go, upon their decease, in the first place to their children, as those to whom they have given being, and for whom they are therefore bound to provide. But the negative branch, or total exclusion of parents and all lineal ancestors from succeeding to the inheritance of their offspring, is peculiar to our own laws, and such as have been deduced from the same original. For, by the Jewish law, on failure of issue, the father succeeded to the son, in exclusion of brethren, unless one of them married the widow and raised up seed to his brother. And, by the laws of Rome, in the first place the children or lineal descendants were preferred, and, on failure of these, the father and mother or lineal ascendants succeeded together with the brethren and the sisters though by law of the Twelve Tables, the mother was originally, on account of her sex, excluded. Hence this rule of our laws has been censured and declaimed against as absurd and derogating from the maxims of equity and natural justice. Yet that there is nothing unjust or absurd in it, but that on the contrary it is founded upon very good reason may appear from considering as well the nature of the rule itself as the occasion of introducing it into our laws. We are to reflect, in the first place, that all rules of succession to estates are creatures of the civil polity and juris positivi merely. The right of property, which is gained by occupancy, extends naturally no farther than the life of the present possessor after which the land, by the law of nature, 
would again become common and liable to be seized by the next occupant. But society, to prevent the mischiefs that might ensue from a doctrine so productive of contention, has established conveyances, wills, and successions, whereby the property originally gained by possession is continued and transmitted from one man to another according to the rules which each state has respectively thought proper to prescribe. There is certainly, therefore, no injustice done to individuals, whatever be the path of descent marked out by the municipal law. If we next consider the time and occasion of introducing this rule into our law, we shall find it to have been grounded upon very substantial reasons. I think there is no doubt to be made, but that it was introduced at the same time with, and in consequence of, the feudal tenures. For it was an express rule of the feudal law that Succesones fiodi talis est natura, quad ascendentes non succedunt, and therefore the same maxim obtains also in the French law to this day. Our Henry I, indeed, among other restorations of the old Saxon laws, restored the right of succession in the ascending line. But this soon fell again into disuse. For so early as Glanville's time, who wrote under Henry II, we find it laid down as established law that Aereditas nunquam ascendit, which has remained an invariable maxim ever since. These circumstances evidently show this rule to be a feudal original, and, taken in that light, there are some arguments in its favor besides those which are drawn merely from the reason of the thing. For, if the feud of which the son died seized was really feudum antiquum, or one descended to him from his ancestors, the father could not possibly succeed to it because it must have passed him in the course of descent, before it could come to the son, unless it were feudum maternum, or one descended from his mother, and then for other reasons, which will appear hereafter, the father could in no wise inherit it. And if it were feudum novum, or one newly acquired by the son, then only the descendants from the body of the feudatory himself could succeed by the known maxim of the early feudal constitutions which was founded as well upon this personal merit of the vassal, which might be transmitted to his children, but could not ascend to his progenitors, as also upon this consideration of military policy, that the decrepit grandsire of a vigorous vassal would be but indifferently qualified to succeed him in his feudal services. Nay, even if this feudum novum were held by the son, ut feudum antiquum, or with all the qualities annexed of a feud descended from his ancestors, such feud must, in all respects, have descended as if it had really been an ancient feud, and therefore could not go to the father, because, if it had been an ancient feud, the father must have been dead before it could have come to the son. Thus, whether the feud was strictly novum, or strictly antiquum, or whether it was novum held ut antiquum, in none of these cases the father could possibly succeed. These reasons, drawn from the history of the rule itself, 
seemed to be more satisfactory than that quaint one of Bracton, adopted by Sir Edward Coke, which regulates the descent of lands according to the laws of gravitation. 2. A second general rule or canon is that the male issue shall be admitted before the female. Thus, sons shall be admitted before daughters, or, as our male lawgivers have somewhat uncomplacently expressed it, the worthiest of blood shall be preferred. As if John Stiles hath two sons, Matthew and Gilbert, and two daughters, Margaret and Charlotte, and dies. First Matthew, and in case of his death without issue, then Gilbert, shall be admitted to the succession in preference to both the daughters. This preference of males to females is entirely agreeable to the law of succession among the Jews and also among the states of Greece, or at least among the Athenians, but was totally unknown to the laws of Rome, such of them, I mean, as are at present extent, wherein brethren and sisters were allowed to succeed to equal portions of the inheritance. I shall not here enter into the comparative merit of the Roman and other constitutions in this particular, nor examine into the greater dignity of blood in the male or female sex, but shall only observe that our present preference of males to females seems to have arisen entirely from the feudal law. For though our British ancestors, the Welsh, appear to have given a preference to males, yet our subsequent Danish predecessors seem to have made no distinction of the sexes, but to have admitted all the children at once to the inheritance. But the feudal law of the Saxons on the continent, which was probably brought over hither and first altered by the law of King Canute, gives an evident preference of the male to the female sex. Pater aut mater defuncti, filio non file aeredatium relinquent, qui defunctus non filio sed filias reliquerit, ad eas omnis areditas pertinit. It is possible, therefore, that this preference might be a branch of that imperfect system of feuds which obtained here before the conquest especially as it subsists among the customs of Gavelkind, and as, in the charter or laws of King Henry I, it is not, like many Norman innovations, given up, but rather enforced. The true reason of preferring the males must be deduced from feudal principles, for, by the genuine and original policy of that constitution, no female could ever succeed to a proper feud insomuch as they were incapable of performing those military services for the sake of which that system was established. But our law does not extend to a total exclusion of females, as the Salic Law, and others, where feuds were most strictly retained. It only postpones them to males. For, though daughters are excluded by sons, yet they succeed before any collateral relations. Our law, like that of the Saxon feudists before mentioned, thus steering a middle course between the absolute rejection of females and the putting them on a footing with males. 3. A third rule or canon of descent is this, that where there are two or more males in equal degree, the eldest only shall inherit, but the females altogether. As if a man hath two sons, Matthew and Gilbert, 
and two daughters, Margaret and Charlotte, and dies. Matthew, his eldest son, shall alone succeed to his estate, in exclusion of Gilbert, the second son, and both the daughters. But if both the sons die without issue before the father, the daughters Margaret and Charlotte shall both inherit the estate as co-parsoners. This right of primogeniture in males seems anciently to have obtained among the Jews, in whose constitution the eldest son had a double portion of the inheritance. In the same manner as with us, by the laws of King Henry I, the eldest son had the capital fee or principal feud of his father's possessions, and no other preeminence. And as the eldest daughter had afterwards the principal mansion, when the estate descended in coparcenary. The Greeks, the Romans, the Britons, the Saxons, and even originally the feudists divided the land equally, some among all the children at large, some among males only. This is certainly the most obvious and natural way, and has the appearance, at least in the opinion of younger brothers, of the greatest impartiality and justice. But when the emperors began to create honorary feuds or titles of nobility, it was found necessary, in order to preserve their dignity, to make them impartible, or, as they styled them, feuda individua, and in consequence, descendable to the eldest son alone. This example was farther enforced by the inconveniences that attended the splitting of estates, namely, the division of the military services, the multitude of infant tenants incapable of performing any duty, the consequential weakening of the strength of the kingdom, and the inducing younger sons to take up with the business and idleness of a country life instead of being serviceable to themselves and the public by engaging in mercantile, in military, in civil, or in ecclesiastical employments. These reasons occasioned an almost total change in the method of feudal inheritances abroad, so that the eldest male began universally to succeed to the whole of the lands in all military tenures, and in this condition the feudal constitution was established in England by William the Conqueror. Yet we find that Sockage estates frequently descended to all the sons equally, so lately as when Glanville wrote in the reign of Henry II, and it is mentioned in the mirror as a part of our ancient constitution that knight's fees should descend to the eldest son and sockage fees should be partable among the male children. However, in Henry III's time, we find by Bracton that sockage lands, in imitation of lands in chivalry, had almost entirely fallen into the right of succession by primogeniture, as the law now stands, except in Kent, where they gloried in the preservation of their ancient Gavilkind tenure, of which a principal branch was the joint inheritance of all the sons, and except in some particular manors and townships, where their local customs continued the descent, sometimes to all, sometimes to the youngest son only, or in other more singular methods of succession. As to the females, they are still left as they were by the ancient law, for they were all equally incapable of performing any personal service, and therefore one main reason for preferring the eldest ceasing, such preference would have been injurious to the rest, 
and the other principal purpose, the prevention of the too minute subdivision of estates, was left to be considered and provided for by the lords who had the disposal of these female heiresses in marriage. However, the succession by primogeniture, even among females, took place as to the inheritance of the crown, wherein the necessity of a sole and determinate succession is as great in one sex as the other. And the right of sole succession, though not of primogeniture, was also established with respect to female dignities and titles of honor. For if a man holds an earldom to him and the heirs of his body, and dies, leaving only daughters, the eldest shall not, of course, be countess, but the dignity is in suspense or abeyance till the king shall declare his pleasure. For he, being the fountain of honor, may confer it on which of them he pleases. In which disposition is preserved a strong trace of the ancient law of feuds before their descent by primogeniture, even among the males, was established, namely, that the Lord might bestow them on which of the sons he thought proper. Progressium estut ad filios divinirit, in quem scilicit dominus acvelet, beneficim confirmare. End of chapter 14, part 2.